Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find other episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is at TownsendJoelC. I want to talk today about some tobacco litigation. In the 1990s, lawyers in Australia were increasingly looking at the tobacco industry and asking themselves the question as to whether it was time to bring actions to test the lawfulness of the conduct of tobacco companies over many years. There were a number of pieces of litigation commenced, but there was no large judgment which really resolved the question of liability against the tobacco companies. In 2001, Peter Gordon, then at Slater and Gordon, commenced on behalf of Roller McCabe, who was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, a proceeding against British American tobacco. And that went ahead in the Victorian Supreme Court, and it turned into a dispute about documents. In civil litigation in our system, there is an obligation of discovery. When this obligation is invoked, a party has to produce to the other parties in the litigation uh, an affidavit, a sworn statement, setting out all of the relevant documents in the first party's possession, which might be relevant to the litigation, and all documents which have at some point been in the first party's possession, which might be relevant. This became important in the McCabe case because it became apparent that there were documents which had been in the possession of British American Tobacco, which had been destroyed by the company. And they'd been destroyed pursuant to a document destruction policy, which itself became the subject of considerable dispute in the litigation. The lawyers for Roller McCabe ended up advancing an argument that the defence of British American Tobacco should be struck out, effectively that the court should find in Roller McCabe's favour because the tobacco company had withheld from disclosure in its discovery affidavit that it had once possessed certain documents going to issues like the tobacco company's knowledge of the addictiveness of nicotine and also uh, that it had effectively created and used this document destruction policy in order to get rid of documents which would affect it adversely in future litigation and it framed that document retention policy with purportedly innocent purposes motivating it in order to avoid that inference, to avoid the inference that they were seeking to destroy documents to limit their liability. I spoke to Peter Gordon, who was the central figure uh, behind the running of this litigation for Roller McCabe, and he described to me the genesis of the litigation and told me a little about the hearing before Justice Eames of the Victorian Supreme Court. 
journey with Roland and Cab started early 2000s. Had you done a lot of tobacco litigation before that point? Yeah, well, um, uh, I had started uh, researching tobacco in about 1996, 1997, after the, um, the United States states brought the healthcare cost recovery uh, litigation and it settled. I think it settled in 1995 for $250-odd billion. But one of the other terms of the settlement was that the tobacco industry was forced to put in public depositories its discovered documents, so its internal records of how it did everything from market to children to attenuate the um, addictiveness of uh, the other nicotine levels in, in tobacco. Um, and they had to do, do that both in um, America, in Minnesota, I think, and in Guildford in, in, in England. And uh, I sent a couple of uh, researchers over there to look at the Australian end of things. Um, and it was really, really informative in a way that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have thought. And, you know, it turned out that it was at the before British American Tobacco was British American Tobacco. It was WD and H O Wills, and it had an office in Pagewood in um, New South Wales. And in the late nineteen fifties, its its own research in Sydney on addiction, on nicotine and, and addiction, was was world leading, even for the tobacco industry. Um, and no one would ever have known that. In fact, truthfully, probably very few people know it even now. But it was in those um, those musty depositories in Guildford and in Minnesota. So our first idea was to run a class action, alleging that the entire conduct of the tobacco industry was misleading and deceptive under the Trade Practices Act. Now I still believe that's true, <laughs> um, but it. Um, it was one of, the, one of the very early class actions issued. It was in front of Murray Wilcox in the federal court in Sydney and um, it passed its first sort of massive attack by Philip Morris, uh, Rothmans and W.D. and H.O. Wills, British American Tobacco. Um, but then it got in front of a court of appeal. You know, the court of appeal had been the bone of my life in tobacco, <laughs> in tobacco litigation and th- this was one where... Um, uh, all three judges absolutely just tore into it. In fact, uh, Justice Spender, uh, I think, departed from a strict analysis of the law to say this case is really just the Ben-Hur of ambulance chasing, which I thought gave a fairly clear window into you know, his um, attitude to it and his objectivity in assessing the um, the law in relation to the whole thing. He was never going to put it up um, and uh, so, you know, we lost. We took that. Um, I'll also add in there, we had um, Jeff Nettle before he was um, made a High Court judge um, who heroically stood up to them and I thought com- convincingly out-argued them for four or five days. Um, sadly, they were on the bench and he wasn't. <laughs> um, we lost uh, the special leave application and one of the lessons that I... Uh, drew out of it was that we had made we'd bitten on to to bitten off more than we could chew. We framed it as an attack on all three of the tobacco companies, and we'd framed it with respect to all periods, all plaintiffs, and the whole thing is um, uh, is negligent and misleading, and deceptive and illegal. And uh, I thought that with something as evil 
and as ubiquitous as tobacco. And with, I mean, I've often said that you know, as much as they're in the cigarette business, they're in the litigation business because when you actually market a product which kills people as it's intended to be used and you make billions out of it, you've got to have a convincing way to immunise yourself from your tort liability. Um, so they're in the litigation business every bit as much as they are in the, the cigarette uh, business. And it was, I'll say, naive to think that we could simply just effectively bring the whole industry to its knees with, with the one class action. So the, the tack that we took was, why don't we look for, um, to use a cliche, the perfect plaintiff who can make a targeted attack to just prove one point, that there are some people who've got great negligence claims and, and who have got serious diseases because you were negligent. And so um, one of the you know, complexities of the class action was that um, it uh, embraced people who'd suffered lung cancer, but it also uh, included people who'd got throat cancer, mouth cancer, diabetes, stuff, conditions for which the medical causation was more complicated and harder to prove. So we thought, let's just look for someone who's got lung cancer. Um, and you could, you could, there are a lot of plaintiffs who you think about people you know who've smoked, you know, they might have started on Marlborough or Winfield, Winnie Blues, you know, um, and without ever knowing that they were crossing brands. And every time you cross brands, you enliven the need to have more than one tobacco company um, at the bar table in the, in the proceedings. So... Um, let's look for someone who's got lung cancer but who has also only smoked the cigarettes of one manufacturer. So we, are, we don't give the other side the right to cross-examine each other's witnesses and do double-up cross-examinations on us and double the cost and the length of the trial, etc. Um, it's obviously a harder case to run if um, you are commencing to smoke after there's graphic warnings on every pack. So let's look for someone who started before there were warnings on packs. And it's uh, obviously a stronger case if you can say, when I started smoking, I was a kid. By the time I got to exercise an adult choice, I was medically addicted. So that, that choice was always compromised beyond the time that I was an infant at law. And one of the benefits of the class action is that we then had a database of 4,000 uh, group members, potential you know, group members uh, to look for. And so we, we mined that um, for a plaintiff who would fit all of those um, criteria and uh, the one who did it best was Roland McCabe. In addition to those objective criteria, though, you needed something else. You needed... Obviously, it would be no good to have someone who was a tax cheat or had done time for armed robbery. So you needed someone who had a, um, you know, a reasonably good character, uh, but you also needed someone who was tough. She is about the toughest person I've ever met. You um, issue proceedings on her behalf, and then it turns into uh, a long back and forth about documents and um, again, reflecting the fact that this is a litigation business, not just a tobacco mm. business that they're in. Um, was that frustrating to see go down that course that you weren't getting at the heart of the questions of causation, or was it that itself 
a wrongdoing that you were happy to be in the business of seeking well, to expose? One of the eccentricities of the case is by that stage we had been very committed, and um, these were sort of earlier days of the internet, but um, you could actually um, search tobacco documents online. And we had a, a small and dedicated team of people that included, um, you know, I was really the only dunce amongst them, um, a, a young Lisa Nichols, who just last week was appointed to the Supreme Court, um, uh, you know, who made a pretty hefty intellectual contribution to it, and Andrew Higgins, Tony's son, um, who was, I think, just a law student when he... He might have been an article clerk. No, I think he was actually a law student um, uh, working for us. He is now Professor of Comparative Law at Oxford University. So there was some serious talent, you know, in our in our group. You know, Jack Rush was in it, John Gordon was in it, and Bernie Quinn. Um, and uh, But the solicitors amongst us, we would go home at night, have dinner, and whilst everyone else went off and watched whatever TV show was on, we would go to tobaccodocuments.org and... Uh, start mining for you know keyword searches like Glenn Eagleton, who was a partner at Clayton Utes, um, who not all of whose work for the tobacco industry was as a lawyer. Um, and a consequence of that is, uh, again, strategically, it was useful to us that she suffered from lung cancer because it meant that we could ask the court for a speedy trial. And it was useful to us that we'd done so much preparatory work on the documents, we thought, because it meant that instead of saying um, we want general discovery, which may take you eight years to, to assemble, we want specific categories of documents um, and uh, we made targeted requests for the stuff that we thought would help us out the most. Uh, and we, and uh, Justice Eames made those orders very, very quickly. Um, and all of a sudden, they, you could tell that they kind of didn't know what hit them. They got this case. It was in the sweet spot for them in terms of we're really exposed. Here's a woman who was addicted before she was 16 years old. She started smoking when she was 10. There were no warnings on the pack. We knew it was addictive, but we were holding it out for the rest of the world. It was a strong case. Um, but, you know, after they agonised and you know wrestled like, you know, stuck pigs for... Um, for a little while when their affidavit of documents finally came, they had no documents to discover in any of the relevant categories. Um, and because we had uh, access to tobaccodocuments.org and, and there were a couple of other uh, online uh, resources, because I had these brilliant young people working with me, like um, Andrew and, and Lisa in particular, we actually took the affidavit and cross-references to these vague and elliptical references to document retention policies. And and, and I always remember sort of working with them. It was probably like 6.30, 7 o'clock. You know, we, we, we were working back, but not that late. When the penny dropped with us, what if what they did was predict almost on a daily basis what documents might be harmful to them in court and routinely destroyed them precisely for that purpose? And there was kind of... Yeah, they wouldn't do that. Surely not. <laughs> not even a tobacco company. Um, but then you know, we sort of went home, came back the next day, and it was kind of, you know what, that, that kind of is what happened. Mm. Um, so um, we 
almost the, 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 the key moment in, in the whole thing. It's hard to say that because it was a, probably the most tumultuous case of my career. Um, but when we felt we had enough evidence to prove that, I remember Jack Rush coming over to, to, to the office to say, look, if we make an application to strike him out for this conduct, that's going to decide the litigation one way or another. Now, we've got the option of just running the trial you know, we, and proving negligence. What we, you know, we've got the two options. We can either go on and prove the case in the ordinary way or we can say what you've done is either a contempt of court or it so contaminates the chance of a fair trial that your defence ought to be struck out. And there are risks to both approaches. And I kind of remember Jack saying, um, this is kind of a, this is a Rubicon for us. Like, this is the biggest decision in the case. Sure you want to do it? You know, long pause. No, I, th- I think so. And he was like, yeah, I think so too. And off we went. You, you had the hearing um, on that question before Justice Ames. Did you get a sense early on about how dim a view he was taking of the tobacco company's conduct? No, they made a uh, strategic or tactical error um, in the whole thing in that we put forward the material we got from the uh, document depositories. And it was persuasive, but not killer evidence. Um, And they put on an affidavit which said something like... um, um, the lawyers told us okay to do this. We immediately said, "Well, you're relying on legal advice. Um, we want to see it. You've, yeah. waived, you've waived privilege." Yeah. And that waiver of privilege exposed documents which uh, destroyed them. Pardon the pun. Um, uh, it, it exposed documents you can still read about in the. Um, I think three or four times that this case hits the law books. One of them is this odd case, I think called Gordon against British American Tobacco, which um, purports to um, judicially advise me on what documents I'm allowed to remember and what content of what documents I'm allowed to um, uh, remember and and take notice of and talk to people about. Um, But I think I'm on safe ground when I say that if you you, you can still read the... um, the Jeff Eames judgment, and it refers to the Oxland memo and the Wilson memorandum, and those were, you know, again, pardon the pun, smoking guns um, uh, in terms of the the intent. There were, for all of the notoriety of the McCabe case, the principal facts of what happened were not in dispute. Did they destroy massive amounts of documents? Yes, they did. Did they do it deliberately? Yes, they did. Were the documents relevant to smoking and health litigation? Yes, they were. Were the documents likely to um, assist plaintiffs and hurt them? Yes, they were. Did they know that? Yes, they did. The only question was, in all of those uncontroversial uh, premises, was their predominant purpose to deny the court the opportunity to see it and the plaintiff the opportunity to use it. And we said yes, and they said no. We were just saving space, Um, despite the fact that they'd reduced most of the documents to a couple of CDs um, that would fit on most people's, in in most people's coat pocket. Um, It was an entirely implausible defence. None of the rest of the um, of those premises were were in any real controversy. 
In the course of the proceedings before Justice Eames, British American Tobacco disclosed a number of pieces of legal advice which it had received relating to its document destruction policy. One of the consequences of that was that Justice Eames held that British American Tobacco had waived the privilege which it otherwise held in those documents. That is, it had waived its right to refuse to disclose the contents of the legal advice it had been given on that topic. As a result, Roland McCabe's lawyers were able to see a wide range of pieces of advice which British American Tobacco had been given about document destruction over the years and relied on those documents on the application made to Justice Eames to strike out the company's defence. Having done that, they persuaded Justice Eames that, in fact, the document destruction policy was created in order to justify the destruction of documents which would be harmful to the tobacco company in litigation and as a result Justice Eames held that the defence of British American tobacco should be struck out and judgment entered in favour of Roller McCabe. Once Justice Eames had handed down that decision the tobacco company appealed to the Victorian Court of Appeal. Did you expect an appeal? I mean, you obviously you knew that they, they were they were fierce litigators. Um, did you expect that they would appeal? Uh, yeah. Don't have a, a really clear recollection of whether or not I expected an appeal after we won it. After the after the Eames decision. We still had to go on and assess damages. So there was a jury that assessed damages, and they assessed damages at seven hundred thousand dollars, and which was a moderate figure for a woman in her circumstances dying of cancer. I think that jury were quite. That jury didn't get to find out what had happened before, and they were, I think, quite quizzical about. Don't we get to decide whether they should have to pay? Like, shouldn't you know what I mean? And the, the judges, no. You should assume that they have to pay. Just tell us how much. I remember thinking that that jury was at least some of them were quite quite a bit quizzical about um, about that. I guess we always probably thought that there was um, an appeal coming, but on the other hand, we also thought this could get so much worse for them. Well, I guess we had our first indication that this was a court of appeal that was on the hunt for us was that we actually um, had su- subpoenaed or found some evidence which even more deeply implicated them as to the nefarious and criminal purpose of the document destruction. And um, we thought, well, if this is going to be tested on appeal, we want the court to have access to this as well. So we thought it was a pretty vanilla application. It comes back and the court says, we're not interested in new evidence. We're here to decide whether what uh, the judge decided on the basis of what was in front of him was right or not. which I thought was odd, particularly given that the circumstances in which the judge had been denied that evidence were themselves suspicious. But it gave it... I didn't really pick it up at the time, but it, it, but it did make me worry. And so, um, effectively, the, um, uh, the Court of Appeal um, reverses it, sends it back. Two questions. Um, I mean, in the meantime, 
Roel McCabe has died, and, and her husband John. Oh, did he? Yeah. Did he died as well? He was a teacher, and he just dropped dead from a heart attack. No doubt connected to the stress both of both of the case, the impending appeal, and her, you know, last stages of cancer. He was a terrific fellow, John. Um, um, I always remember Roller in the last days of her life going to his funeral. We were all devastated, and, and she was just facing her own mortality, looking at her husband's coffin, sitting by herself. It was one of those haunting things I've ever seen. British-American tobacco was successful in persuading the Court of Appeal that it should not have been found to have waived its privilege in most of the advice it had been given about its document destruction policy. The Court of Appeal adjudged that, in fact, the defence should not have been struck out and remitted the matter for further hearing. Not happy with that outcome, Roland McCabe's lawyers, in the meantime, Roland McCabe herself had died. Roland McCabe's lawyers sought special leave to appeal to the High Court of Australia. That was an unsuccessful application, and the matter ultimately did have to go back to Victoria's Supreme Court to be determined. course it, it changed the the course of um, uh, tobacco litigation to some degree in that in that you know you didn't then have these adverse inferences which presumably otherwise could have been drawn in almost any tobacco litigation case as to what the companies knew and when so you went back on remittal uh, and you had to run a case which was, to some degree, confined by what the Court of Appeal had done. And without a plaintiff. Yeah. A factually dense um, negligence claim in relation to her behaviour since she was 10 back in 1950 and without her to give the evidence. So that we, were, we had certain hurdles um, that were pretty insurmountable, really. So I think we took it to the... We took it to the High Court, and the High Court, comprising Justices Gleeson, Gummo and Hayne, uh, refused its special leave on the basis that um, the competing factual narratives of the two parties made the matter an inappropriate vehicle to test the question of document destruction. It read to me like an unusually detailed special leave disposition like they normally provide you a line and it's a few paragraphs and they do say something like something here about um concerned with fairness of trial not punishment of a person for wrongdoing and i sort of got the sense that what lay behind that was that they're not wanting to be seen to be endorsing this conduct while wanting to avoid having to deal with the the question on appeal. Yeah, I will say I think that's a cop out. You know, sure. I, I think that um, um, I often wonder. Um, I often wondered as I watched Ken Hayne navigate through the Banking Royal Commission um, and the conduct of some of the Collins Street and Phillips Street lawyers that was exposed with some of those big financial institutions and his uh, outrage at some of those practices, whether it ever occurred to him that the waving through of Clayton Newt's um, 
in in McCabe may have given them the impression that they were invulnerable. Peter Gordon reflected with me on the legacy of the Roller McCabe litigation and on tobacco litigation more generally. The, the legacy of the case from your point of view? Um, well, you know, I think you can't look at McCabe without looking at its international uh, context. We took the principal evidence, and the, and the McCabe trial also exposed Fred Gulson, um, the in-house lawyer who came to us after the case and said everything you alleged is true, and what the Court of Appeal did was a joke, and I'm prepared to give evidence. And we got approached by the US Department of Justice about that, and I took Fred Gulson over, and he gave evidence in the... Um, in the case before uh, Federal Court Justice Gladys Kessler in the um, was a racketeering case that the Clinton government took against the entire tobacco industry, settled for a few billion dollars. But a critical finding about that was of the, the ongoing unlawful nature of their global document destruction. That RICO prosecution depended critically on evidence which was exposed in the McCabe case. So I think that one of the principal legacies is, is, although from a legal point of view, we lost it in Australia, we actually won it in the United States um, and we inflicted, to a vengeful guy like me, this is important, we, we inflicted much more damage on them globally um, as a consequence of that than they were able to do um, to the McCabe family here. So that's the first thing, I think. The second thing is I think that a lot of the learnings out of that both motivated um, the Labor government and uh, Nicola Roxon in particular and the health lobby and also educated them about what was necessary to gear up for the plain packaging fight which happened over the over the succeeding years and I know that um, Andrew Higgins went on you know did a lot of great work for with that and so did Jonathan Liebman from Tobacco Control Victoria who'd um, been a really strong supporter and partner of ours in the in the general sense, um, throughout the McCabe stuff, and was a champion of the of the plain packaging, and I, I you know, I don't think I won't overeg that, but I think that the McCabe legacy was important to the plain packaging fight. There remains a uh, Roller McCabe Centre for Law and Cancer um, now, and what it does is educate young lawyers and health activists around the world about the tactics, the criminality of the tobacco industry and how to be forewarned and forearmed and how to fight for better smoking and health outcomes around the world. And of course, there are the McCabe Amendments to the Evidence Act, which codify and criminalise what British American tobacco and Clayton Newts got away with um, in the McCabe case. Looking at it on the cat on the um, judgments it's sort of extraordinary like that they actually proffered this view that the that t- tobacco wasn't causal and that the addictive properties weren't linked to um, lung cancer it seems extraordinary that at that point in our history in the 2000s they were still putting forward that kind of view yeah and equally with nicotine um, there's a, a famous bit of vision of what were referred to as the seven dwarfs, the seven um, 
uh, leaders of the seven tobacco companies all standing up in Congress and saying, I believe tobacco is not addictive, and I also believe that tobacco is not addictive. And they all said it. They all, they all knew it to be false. Um, and they'd known it for years. In fact, courtesy that I, I said at the beginning about the work done in Pagewood, they knew about the pharmacological addictive properties of nicotine in 1960, 61, 62. John F. Kennedy called, had his Surgeon General do a major inquiry into this, and the American government actually consulted them and said, you got any evidence? Can you, you know, be, be um, transparent with us about what you know about, about addiction? And they lied to the Surgeon General and to the US government. That was published and it became the sort of centrepiece of world knowledge about addiction for the next 18 years. So for the next 18 years, this industry lied to and deceived the entire world about the pharmacological addictive properties of um, uh, tobacco. And that's the way they live their lives. You know, that's the way they live their lives. I'll finish with one, with one story for you. I, 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 I moonlight as the president of the Western Bulldogs and um, uh, I remember going to the Sydney Cricket Ground uh, one day for a Bulldogs Sydney Swans game and I was making my way around to the area where I was to sit past all these corporate boxes um, and um, there's one box which was British American tobacco and it had this big group of people uh, uh, in there and they were all enjoying each other's company happy there was all sorts of lavish things um, uh, laid out but the minute anyone sort of went near the door there was kind of this suspicion and I, I think these people know that they run an evil industry that most people feel is abhorrent but they've learned to live with it they've learned to um, seek I guess sucker and support in each other's in each other's company and to virtually I, I, in just as, as my visceral impression say stuff the world we, we're making good money out of this we're sticking together and you can all go and get stuffed The Roller McCabe case attracted a huge amount of publicity when it was unfolding in the courts. I've thought about it from time to time over the years and it was a real privilege to speak with Peter Gordon both about this case and about tobacco litigation more generally. I hope you found it interesting too. Once again, past episodes are on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and on Spotify and you can find me on Twitter at at TownsendJoelC. Thanks for joining me and I'll speak to you on the next episode of In That Case. Mm-hmm.